This episode of the APA podcast is brought to you by Tyler Technologies. Join Tyler for a live panel on May 13th, where thought leaders in local government will share how they're empowering citizens to drive development in a digital world. Visit planning.org slash Tyler to register today. Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that looks at how different communities prepared for and responded to natural hazards such as floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and more. How have planners in these communities promoted resilience in their hazard mitigation and disaster recovery planning? We'll find out on this episode of Resilience Roundtable brought to you in conjunction with the American Planning Association's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. I'm your host, Jim Schwab, FAICP. I'm chair of APA's Hazard Mitigation and Disaster Recovery Planning Division. Our guest today is Michelle Steinberg with the National Fire Protection Association. Michelle, let's start with your own background in the planning field. You've become heavily identified with the program at the National Fire Protection Association. Tell us about your position there and what led you specifically into the whole subfield of wildfire mitigation. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I've been at the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, since 2002, so nearly 20 years. Um, I've been working in wildfire that whole time, uh, primarily with uh, the outreach and advocacy that we do and the education that we do with the public through such programs as Firewise USA and the Wildfire Community Preparedness Day campaign. Um, I've also worked uh, at some level with NFPA's codes and standards as a what we call a staff liaison as those are created uh, for standards having to do with wildfire and con- safe construction and safe response. So uh, fire response. So that's been uh, you know wonderful part of my career. But I think in terms of where I got started and how did I get interested in wildfire, I don't have a fire background, you know, big secret. Um, I actually uh, got really interested from a personal, a personal experience as a, a young person uh, when my family moved to the home that we uh, grew up in, in in Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, we moved there in 1977 when I was 12. And uh, that winter, the blizzard of 78, impacted my family home and neighborhood. We had um, many destroyed buildings, homes floated out to sea. Uh, They had to close things down because you couldn't move vehicles. National Guard had to come in and help people. Um, Basically what I realized is when the ocean decides it wants to be in the marsh, it doesn't really care that human beings have built a road and houses in between. So that was sort of my first experience of nature's power and started to get me fascinated about the environment in general, but particularly these natural phenomenon that we start to call disasters when they impact us. Um, and that led me on to, after college, being interested in some way of getting involved with environmental work. And that actually led me to floodplain management with the state of Massachusetts. So uh, just very fascinated with our interaction of how we build and plan and develop our communities with relation to nature and how we tend to ignore uh, the fact that uh, floods will happen, hurricanes will happen, earthquakes will happen, and then wildfires will happen. And I was really introduced to 
the wildfire problem as a natural hazards problem by the people that ended up hiring me at NFPA back in the late 90s. Um, when I realized that fire repeats in the same areas, it is part of the ecosystem. That's when I realized this is a lot like flood, um, where you have a repeated natural phenomenon, but we're building as if those phenomenon didn't exist. So that that to me, uh, as I as I be also became a planner by education and training, uh, that nexus fascinates me between how we choose where we're building and how we're building and what we're doing around the natural environment. NFPA hosted a Facebook Live event in which your CEO, Jim Pauley, introduced a new policy initiative called Outthink Wildfire. Can you outline for us the broad highlights of this initiative and the evolving needs that lie behind it? I'm very happy to talk about Outthink Wildfire, and uh, that was a fun exercise trying to name and brand this new policy initiative that we were standing up. Uh, you know, some of the thoughts from uh, people in marketing were, you know, eliminate wildfires. We said, no, that's actually not the point. So again, as I was saying, wildfire is a natural phenomenon. It is with us. It's part of the, the globe. It's part of history. It's not going away. What we need to understand when we're building and living in these areas that where wildfires occur is what we need to be doing to outthink wildfire in the sense of not continuing to put ourselves in situations where we have whole communities wiped out by wildfire. So we're not trying, you know, we're not trying to eliminate wildfire. We, that would be uh, kind of a fool's errand. What we're trying to eliminate is these disasters where hundreds and thousands of homes go down at the same time during these big events. And we think that there's five tenets that really um, policymakers um, need to get behind, the public needs to get behind, and they start with the built environment. So. The first two have to do with our built environment, which is for existing structures at areas of high risk. Everything needs to be mitigated. Risk needs to be reduced to the building itself by perhaps retrofitting. Uh, some people will call that hardening the structure. Um, that's that's kind of a term of art, but you know, doing things like replacing roofs if they're flammable, uh, making sure windows are are, are fire resistant, um, dealing with our landscapes around homes. And then in, when we're looking at new development into uh, areas of wildfire risk, uh, are they using the best land use planning standards and building standards that exist out there from what we know about the science of how homes and, and communities can ignite and burn? So those are the two big pieces there for the built environment. Then we also want to make sure that our fire service is able to provide safe and effective response. We want our federal, state, and even private landowners to do a lot more with vegetative fuel management, meaning um, all of the vegetation that drives wildfire to make sure that our forests and rangelands are in healthy conditions. And that is something that, you know, that's been on the books from legislation for many years at the federal level. Uh, we just think there needs to be more and uh, we want to encourage that. Um, that's not something NFPA can control, but that is something we strongly support. Um, and finally, that the public, uh, the people who live, work, and play in these areas of risk understand their risk and are able to take action both to prepare their homes, but also to prepare to, to save themselves and their families in the case of a major event. So part of what's changed, you said sort of the evolving needs on this, why are we doing this now? 
Um, it kind of occurred to us um, the last few years of these devastating wildfires in places like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, in Texas, um, and particularly in California recently, with these huge losses and losses of life that we just haven't seen in many, many decades, uh, that we've been trying to solve this problem of wildfire disasters with just a couple of elements. You know, let's educate the public and let's ask them to voluntarily do action. It's been going great with our Firewise USA communities, but, you know, that program is wonderful and I'll always stand behind it, but it's only one element. And we put a lot of burden traditionally on our fire service to come and save the day when, in fact, we have not put policies in place that make it easier and even possible for them to save the day. We don't have the fire service infrastructure we need, like roads and water <laughs> in a lot of these places. Um, when you have hundreds of homes exposed because they've been planned and built that way to be exposed to fire, there's not a way that our fire service can keep up. So it's really unfair to put it on just those two elements. So those two elements alone can't change the future outcomes of this problem. And we really felt we needed a broader approach. The overall emphasis seems to be a shift from simply encouraging and recommending best practices to enacting regulations, codes, and standards to curtail problematic development in the wildland-urban interface in the first place. NFPA is well known for promulgating model codes on fire-related topics. First, can you explain the concept of the wildland-urban interface for those new to this subject? And then can you explain this new emphasis on a legislative and regulatory approach to wildfire? Sure. Um, I, I, the wildland-urban interface word is a, a really challenging phrase uh, Stephen Pine, who's a fire historian and very well known in this field, says it's a it's a dumb name for a dumb problem. I don't know if I'd go that far, but that always makes me chuckle. Uh, the acronym WUI, we say WUI. People just look at us like we're a little crazy. But basically what we've been trying to talk about is this problem as not a place. When you say interface, you think of a geographic location. It's not really a place on a map, which does make it hard to regulate. But it's more like a set of conditions that have to be understood around risk. So it's where it's it's not necessarily like a line where the forest meets the buildings. You might see that in some diagrams. We know that embers fly through the air. We know that the fire is going to impact buildings well inside a community, not right next to the forest or the rangeland. So it is um, that set of conditions that drives fire. And again, fire will reoccur in these um in these ecosystems over and over again at different intervals. So we know fire is coming. So we have to think about that set of conditions and that relative risk. So basically I like to talk about areas at risk from wildfire rather than wild and urban interface when I can, just because it's such a confusing term. But, you know, that being said, you know, there's been a lot more being done with risk mapping to try to understand not only how fire is going to spread in the so-called wildlands, in the forest, in the shrubbery, in the brush, but what's it going to do when it hits a community? What, how, how are homes igniting? And then how are they often um, igniting each other? So once, once the fire enters a community, do we have conditions in the, in the neighborhood that mean that, for example, roof lines are so close that the fire will, you know, a fire starts to burn a structure and throw off a lot of heat. If there's other structures nearby, uh, they're in trouble because you, you don't want that fuel package of a house burning right next to your house. Uh, how will the wind impact it? So we're trying to understand those. And it does, you know, when you can't say exactly where you need to regulate, it can make it very challenging. 
but states have done it. California has um, identified various levels of high risk um, and moderate risk, et cetera, that they regulate to. Um, and uh, again, this is not a new approach that's abandoning um, public education and the fire service and the voluntary pieces, but it is supplementing. And it's really something we haven't, we haven't tried it yet, you know, so let's give it a try is uh, let's, let's think about how can we encourage folks at the highest risk areas to take the steps for new construction in particular that are not, you know, that, that, that are affordable, that are available, um, that can be sensibly regulated so that you don't continue to create the problem over and over again as you build new or you rebuild um, in these, in these uh, fire-threatened areas. And um, really putting the onus back on the locals, because as you know, Jim, as a planner, those local planning and building decisions have impacts for 30 to 50 years easily um, in the way that not just individual homes, but communities and subdivisions are designed and, and implemented. So uh, if we're designing something to burn, if we're designing it so that it's virtually impossible for the fire service to make a stand and protect those homes, we're not doing ourselves any favors. So there's there's better ways to do it. And that's what we're trying to promote through supporting um, what we feel is sensible legislation um, of a variety of things in states with these with these um, issues. One thing Jim Pauley mentioned at the outset of the announcement was the need for all homes and businesses in the wildland urban interface to be ignition resistant. If this is so important, why and where have we been falling short in meeting this objective? Why have we allowed so many properties to be deficient in this regard? Sure, thanks. And it's, you know, and there's that relative risk thing again, you know, um, this is something that um, we we have some pretty good science on. I will say in the wild world of hazards in general, that um, things like research on wind impacts are probably much more sophisticated than we have for wildfire per se. And even within the fire world, um, it's not as well understood um, in general because uh, much of what you think about with fire codes have to do with um, sources of ignition that are inside the building. Uh, so if you think about electrical fire, fire in the walls, uh, you think about a kitchen fire, these are things where our homes are designed to contain that fire for enough time for either a sprinkler to go off, for people to evacuate, um, for the fire service to, you know, fire trucks to get to your house, you know, in 7, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it takes. Um, you know, so that's the way our homes are designed is for these interior um, exposures to fire and not to exterior exposures by and large. So when we put on roofs that are um, combustible, when we don't pay attention to the windows that will crack under radiant heat. So in other words, you have enough heat coming at that structure. The flames don't even have to touch the house in order for those windows to breach. And then you have fire inside the house. Uh, little vents are also these vulnerable spots. So there's lots of pieces and parts to the envelope of the building and the things right around the building within, uh, we, we talk about next to the building and out to 100 feet, but even the things within five feet of your structure will make a difference. And those are the wonderful things to start telling people about because many of these things, even for existing structures, can be mitigated right away by homeowners. Um, they're, they're not difficult um, and they can really start to make a difference. But um, when we continue to build in ways that that is not taking that exterior exposure to the flames and embers into account, um, we, just keep, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. 
Um, you know, I was asked actually on the national, on the international scale, I remember being asked by a, um, a preeminent fire researcher from Portugal, you know, so why do Americans build their houses out of wood? Because of course they build them out of stone in, in Europe very often. And of course it's an abundant, you know, renewable resource that is uh, affordable. And uh, this is a big, you know, property ownership and affordability of homes is a very big deal in the United States. Um, and I, as a homeowner, I am all for it. You know, affordability and availability of housing is awesome. Um, but I think we, again, just like flood, as I was saying, uh, it has been a sort of a cultural blind spot for us uh, when we look at how we develop communities that we ignore nature, that we're just building in spite of the environment instead of with the environment. So I think this has got to be a sort of a mindset shift across a whole bunch of disciplines and and uh, organizations that, you know, if we're going to continue to build, we must start to take these natural hazards into account. And many of the things that make a home or a structure resistant to wildfire um, are, are affordable or available are not, um, they're not crazy expensive to do. You can have a lot of designs that do a lot better than maybe your typical um, subdivision design might do. We hope everyone is enjoying today's episode. For more great content, Tyler Technologies invites you to a live community development panel focused on citizen empowerment, led by LA County, California and Marco Island, Florida. Tune in on May 13th to learn how these leading local governments are leveraging technology to equip citizens with the tools and knowledge to confidently serve their own development goals in a digital environment. Visit planning.org slash Tyler to register today. Jim Pauley also noted that according to the fourth needs assessment of the U.S. Fire Service, only about one-third of fire departments operating in wildfire-affected areas reported that they had adequate protective equipment for all their firefighters. What will it take to help them meet the needs they face in addressing fire protection in the wildland-urban interface? You know, the fourth needs assessment of the U.S. Fire Service uh, that we did a few years ago, and we're right in the middle of the fifth needs assessment, it interviews fire departments all around the country, about 26,000 fire departments. We get a very good response on that. And in the last one, uh, the fourth needs assessment, only about one third of fire departments who said that uh, we do respond to wildfires said that they had what they needed in terms of protective equipment for all of their firefighters who would respond. And about 88% of our local fire departments, so you think municipal, you know, your, whether it's career or uh, I should say paid or volunteer departments, you know, when you think about that, the vast majority of those local departments do go to on calls that involve brush, grass, or forest fires. Sometimes they're very small, but uh, when you think about them going without what they need, so this would be what we call PPE, personal protective equipment. That's clothing, that's um, breathing apparatus, uh, face shields, um, uh, that kind of thing, as well as the physical equipment, like a, a what we would call a brush truck, which is specialized to get out there in the in the uh, in the brush in the woods to uh, help fight fire in a different way than you would from something that's right on the pavement that you're uh, extinguishing fires at a at a house level. So it's a very different kind of strategy that they need to use, and they do need different equipment. Um, they also, unfortunately, say that they don't have everybody who they would put on a, an assignment trained 
up to this. And it's, it's uh, very frightening because, you know, I, I think that because many of these fires that they do respond to are small, that we might be building up a sense of complacency or confidence that's misplaced, uh, that they figure out oh, this is no big deal. This fire, you know, this wildfire stuff's no biggie. Um, but then you get a situation that that is very serious with um, shifts in wind and things. And this is unfortunately where firefighters uh, suffer injuries and death. Um, so it is a, a very significant problem in the United States um, because it's it's a bit like the fire death problem in homes that are not that big disaster that shows up on the news with hundreds of people killed in one incident, but it's the onesies and twosies. It's the small, small incidents that you may never hear about on the national news, but it certainly adds up in a, in a very um, a depressing toll of what happens to these uh, firefighters. So what's it going to take? Um, I believe it's going to take awareness. Uh, I believe it's going to take political will and it's going to take policy and it's going to take money. So uh, that that uh, recognizing that our fire services in our t- cities and towns do have this responsibility, are doing their best to respond, but are not able to do it safely. That should be a wake up call uh, to not only, you know, I think we rely on the federal government for so many things with regards to fire response or disaster response. This really needs to be a local issue that people take a good hard look at and say, what are we asking our fire service to do? And are we giving them the tools that they need? And how can we do better? Fuel treatments have also played a major role in addressing wildfire hazards. Where are we in incorporating these needs into the planning process in order to better protect communities? So let's see with fuel treatment. So Fuel treatment is one of those phrases I like to break down for people because I recall as a, what I, I, I used to call myself a flood weenie, somebody who was really interested in flood disasters and problems. When I started to be um, exposed to the wonderful world of wildfire, there's lots of terminology we use that general public does not understand. And when I heard fuel, all I thought of was a can of gasoline. But when you talk to a wildland firefighter or somebody in an agency about fuel for wildfire, they're talking about trees. They're talking about brush. They're talking about vegetation. And what they mean by treatment can take a whole bunch of forms. It could be what they call mechanical thinning. So you're getting uh, things to chop up the trees and the brush out there. It could be prescribed fire, which is sort of like a doctor's prescription of medication, uh, a way to put fire back into the landscape to help that ecosystem come back to health because we have suppressed a lot of fire naturally in our country. We saw it as the enemy for over a hundred years. And so putting out every fire before it has a chance to do its ecological job has presented a problem for us in many of these ecosystems. So uh, there's a variety of things happening um, as I mentioned, the, the Healthy Forests Act of 2003 at the national level has called on um, a great deal of uh, work to be done on public lands uh, in terms of uh, dealing with the vegetation, helping the forest be healthier, uh, introducing fire back into the ecosystem where it's possible, but also thinning out where it hasn't been possible or it is not available to us now. Um, and particularly um, that piece of legislation, the Healthy Forest Act, I should say Healthy Forest Restoration Act to be completely accurate, uh, of 2003, also called on um, communities to work on uh, community welfare protection plans across boundaries with federal, state, local agencies, the public, to start to develop these priorities of treatment 
that then uh, are supposed to help the public agencies then decide where to treat. So in other words, if it's near a vulnerable community and the community has done their, their part by creating these plans and doing some action, essentially within their jurisdiction, that presumably they will do more work for them uh, and start to prioritize those treatments nearer to communities where it will make a difference in um, reducing how much fire you have and how fast it's going to move and how fast it's going to spread. So it is uh, it is moving. Um, I believe the General Accounting Office and some, some looks into how are we doing with this uh, uh, 15 years down the road is saying that we're about at we're about at half of where we need to be, half or less in terms of an overall look at how much is being treated, how quickly. Um, so that is that is a huge challenge uh, for the country. And I think that um, with the community wildfire uh, protection plans, which are very useful tools for communities, my take on it as somebody dealing with uh, interested in community planning is that often these are done, um, you know, when they're done really well, they're really engaging everybody. That's the intent, but they can often be that standalone plan that doesn't get integrated with all the other things that communities are planning for or counties are planning for. Um, and so I would say that, you know, one of the needs we see is better integration of these um, community welfare protection plans with the other kinds of planning that is happening at the community level. The biggest implication of this entire initiative is that far more public engagement is needed and far more public pressure on elected officials and regulatory agencies will be necessary to turn the situation around. In other words, the public must want this situation to be improved and addressed before it will happen. A point that was underscored by Roy Wright, a former uh, FEMA official who now heads the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Are there signs of such a shift in public sentiment and activism? And if so, how is it happening? Wow. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a big question. So I'm, I'm glad we did do, uh, for Outthink Wildfire, we had a really great Facebook live event on February 23rd. And if uh, people, I'll mention the links and things, people can go visit that and review that. Uh, that recording is available. But uh, we talked about the, that the public really wants to, we really want the public to address the situation of wildfire disasters and put pressure on, uh, on policymakers. Uh, Roy Wright did underscore that, that we, we have to be speaking up around this. Um, I would say that is happening in certain pockets. So I had mentioned, you know, one of the reasons we are going for this policy initiative is, you know, we realize that it's missing, you know, that it hasn't been a strong push from a national entity, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the nonprofit sector. And that's where we are. So we feel like we're in a good position to do that. The, you know, the point from Roy Wright is it's going to take all of us, right? It's not just for one, one entity to start and hope that others come along. Uh, it's got to be a unified effort. So I would say one example of this shift in uh, sort of public sentiment around this uh, is coming out of our voluntary action with Firewise USA, which is, you know, a program where we want to recognize the efforts of voluntary work across small neighborhoods and communities that organize themselves. And that, of course, is uh, very popular across the, the, the nation. It's in 43 states, but it's growing in popularity, as you can imagine, in California. And we've got some very active, proactive, very smart, engaged people out there in all these sites. But we, we heard from a group in California where, you know, fire has been all around them and they're very concerned about it and they're doing a lot. 
And they said, you know, we're trying to educate our city council. And do you, can you believe that they don't know anything about this? <laughs> you know, so that was kind of, that was their point of view. Um, I won't mention the, the city council or who it was, but you know, they're, they're kind of outraged because they're educated now. They're um, engaged now. They've been evangelized. They believe in this stuff and they're acting on it and they're putting their own time and money into this. And then they're looking around like, okay, so is, so are the policies in our area following along? And when they find out that they're not, or they're just being ignored, or they're not priorities, they're, they're, they can't believe it. So uh, I do see that uh, folks who have engaged in the voluntary part are looking at this to say, why are we going to keep building the same way we've been building into trouble? You know, why, why are we doing this? And where is the political will to change things? So I, I really do think that engaging people, not just to say, oh, you must pass a regulation, but let's have that conversation with our policymakers, with the people we put in office uh, to, to serve us, you know, along these lines for public safety. Let's have that conversation so they can understand maybe where the gaps are in our community and our, and our rules and regulations and our support for different things. So we're really looking for the public to say, uh, you know, to support uh, sensible initiatives that are going to help their communities in the long run. And we also want, you know, policymakers to understand that uh, these educational efforts are really important and we need to do, they need to support them and we need to do more of it. Your answer reminds me of a long time discussion on a number of vital planning issues, which is that they often need some sort of champions in local communities. And those champions don't have to be public officials, but they can be. They don't have to be citizens, but they can be. There's a number of possibilities as to who can be a champion, but you need people who are willing to speak up on these issues to move the issues into the public arena. I couldn't agree more. I think those activists, if you want to call them, are champions, and we tend to call them spark plugs. I don't know how we came up with that, but that kind of evolved. Our Firewise spark plugs out there, we, we have met so many of them, and um, they do, and they work so hard um, on, on this in their communities that you know, it can be it can be kind of painful for them if they're seeing that public policy is taking things in a different direction. So they are very motivated to um, to do that. I think I think one thing we see with that local activism, though, is we are we're talking about very, very diverse um, types of communities, sizes of community, location of community. And so in a very rural area, you know, it's a free for all. There's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of policy making going on. It's, you know, do what you want. And it's really cool to see a rural community bring this as into part of their identity that, you know, we are like this. And part of how we are like this is that we are firewise. We are, you know, dedicated to this public safety because we're out here on our own in this rural area. We know in a rural area, we're not going to have a fire truck in front of our house in seven minutes, like you might in the city when you call 911. We're on our own. So they they have a lot of independent feeling about that, but it's really cool to see them embrace something in their own interest and certainly to speak up um, on those various issues, whether they be land use, whether they be force thinning, whether they be prescribed fire or fire service response or whatever it is, you know, uh, they really become allies across the board on so many issues. And uh, they, they are the bit of the, you know, real life wake up call for their public officials to, to pay attention and do something about it. 
Along the same lines, consumers can pressure markets such as home building, making clear that they want fire safety incorporated into new homes and subdivisions, just as cars incorporate airbags and seatbelts. Is there evidence of this change as well? Yes, I think we're seeing a change in consumerism around um, wanting fire safety. I think I think one of the big hurdles in fire safety in general, so not just wildfire, is our, well, I'd say even in hazard safety in general, Americans assume by and large that any building that they're in, whether it's their home or a public building or a hotel, that it's safe. Um, we just assume it's safe. We're kind of spoiled in that way that we largely, you know, have the codes and standards in place for so much of the built environment, um, whether they're realizing it or not, you know, uh, NFPA, for example, will not do a hotel meeting where we don't have fire sprinklers in the building. Um, so, you know, there, there is that kind of consciousness, I think, but I don't think most people are looking for that. So um, I think as the awareness grows and as the, you know, Part of the education that we do, as well as many other entities around what constitutes a ignition resistant structure or home um, that people suddenly realize, my goodness, you know, we keep building these these things, <laughs> you know, in a way that isn't really very safe. And I think that demand will come. Um, I think that it, it's it's challenging, though, because I think people do assume safety and they're baffled by how did my home burn down? You know, it looked like a bomb went off because they're not watching it happen in real time. Uh, when it burns completely, people are just stunned by that. So I think when they when they have been educated to understand that it doesn't have to be that way, most cases, um, I will say we do have homes in areas that are at the level of risk for when the event comes, you do not want to be there. Um, there are some extremely high risk areas in this country that you would really need to build quite differently to really think that your home is going to survive. But from many places that are more at a, will have a risk, but not necessarily the highest risk, there's lots that can be done. And I think when people get that understanding, uh, they're extremely motivated to say, yeah, we've got to change out how we built. For example, we are going to educate our local landscape contractors that they should not be putting combustible mulch wood chips, pine straw, you name it, right up against our siding. Like that's a bad idea. You know, when they get that, it's like we're, we're going to now demand a different aesthetic. We're going to demand a different product, a different style, um, because we understand that we can still have a beautiful home uh, and a beautiful community without these things that actually are problematic. Michelle, are there specific resources that our listeners can find online or elsewhere if they want to learn more? I'm sure, for instance, that you have some resources available on the NFBA website. Absolutely. So I think that's where I drive people to first is for the information about our new initiative, Outthink Wildfire, uh, where we have challenged uh, the world to end wildfire disasters by 2050, meaning wildfire is still going to be here, but we don't need to have these uh, this loss and suffering that we've been experiencing. Uh, you can go to nfpa.org forward slash wildfire policy, all is one word, um, to get the information about that. You can view the Facebook Live event recording. And we also have lots of resources for residents to get started to make their homes safer on our affiliate website, uh, www.firewise.org is the URL that will take you right there. It's part of the NFPA website. Um, there's others uh, if people want to take a look at the Fire Adapted Learning Network. Uh, that's easy to find with a Google search. 
there's a lot of good information out there that, that people can access today. Great. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For resources on hazard mitigation and disaster recovery, visit planning.org resilience. To hear past episodes of the APA podcast, visit planning.org podcast. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode was brought to you by Tyler Technologies. Remember to join Tyler on May 13th for a live community development panel led by L.A. County, California, and Marco Island, Florida, focusing on citizen empowerment. Visit planning.org slash Tyler to register today.